Chapter 2, Part 1 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Study of Biology, Part 1. It may reasonably be supposed that every intelligent person is perfectly conversant with the term natural history and with the common meaning usually attached thereto. As employed in ordinary life or even in scientific circles, where exactness of language is a necessity for the clear expression of thought, the term has come to signify the study of the animal world. Hence, popularly, a natural historian is believed to be a person who is much at home in zoological gardens, in aquaria, and in all places where animal life is presented to view, for purposes of study, serious or otherwise. To correct popular and long-standing ideas is a task for which no sensible person can have any great liking. Albeit that the task is often necessary, and in matters more serious than the nomenclature of science, has to be undertaken as a matter of conscience. The work of reforming old established notions of things is frequently the labor not of one lifetime, but of many generations. Still, effort is, and must be, cumulative in its effects and if in the present instance I can succeed in showing the rational use of the name natural history, I may perchance not merely preface this chapter by a necessary and appropriate explanation, but likewise aid in diffusing better, because truer, ideas of the aim and scope of natural science. The term natural history finds different meanings according to the latitude in which it is used, and according to the prevailing ideas which the name has been accustomed to convey in the minds of those using the name. In the North, for instance, in academic circles, the name is used to signify zoology, or the study of animals alone. A student who, in a northern university, attends a class of natural history is understood to concern himself solely with the animal population of the globe. Elsewhere, the name has been used to indicate the study of plants and animals together the student of natural history in this latter sense, extending his researches into the field of botany in addition to that of zoology. But a third meaning of the name comes to hand in which it is used, in strict accordance with its etymological significance, to signify not the study of any one or two departments of nature, but to denote the whole range of natural science studies. Employed in this latter sense, the name natural history is found to include not merely the knowledge of animals and plants, but the study of minerals and of the inorganic or non-living world at large, whilst it may also be shown to include the study of the planets because, as a history of nature, it is bound to take account of everything whereof nature consists. To be a natural historian in this latter sense would imply a man's knowledge of the whole universe, but as human life, in one view at least, is conveniently short, and as wisdom and knowledge are apt to linger long, the most ardent devotees of science may reasonably shrink from laying claim to a full or even moderate knowledge of natural history, as thus defined. The admirable Crichton, in these days, is an unknown creature, and although now and then a mastermind sweeps across the horizon of knowledge, although an occasional century may see a Darwin or a Hemholtz with a profound knowledge of nature science in well-nigh all its branches, still the bounds of this wide science of natural history, as we have defined it, 
threaten to prove beyond the powers and grasp of any one mind amongst us. It will thus be seen that the correct use of the name natural history is that in which it is employed to mean a knowledge of universal nature. This being so, what are the branches which this great science may be said to include? I have already indicated that geology and mineralogy, in addition to astronomy and natural philosophy, or physics, find a natural place within its limits. Chemistry is as truly a branch of natural history as geology, and when we have placed these sciences in the category of the natural historian, there yet remains an important branch which in one sense may be said to unite the others, and which concerns itself with the living things of this world. The child in his elementary lessons is accustomed to speak of the three kingdoms of nature. This division into animals, plants, and minerals is a perfectly correct method of parceling out nature's belongings. Although possessing obvious relations with the animals and plants, the sciences of chemistry, geology, and mineralogy deal chiefly with the mineral or lifeless section of nature, as does natural philosophy, and its offspring, astronomy. It becomes clear, then, that the interests of living things require to be considered under a special department of natural science. In former days, as we have seen, the natural historian was the scientific guardian of the animal and plant interests. Abolishing this phrase, what term, it may be inquired, do we now employ to indicate the study of living beings? The answer to this question may fitly conclude these introductory remarks. As Huxley has shown in his lecture on the study of biology, whilst the name natural history was used in the broad sense to include all departments of natural knowledge up to the middle of the 17th century, the growing specialization of scientific studies tended thereafter to separate the sciences into the sciences of mathematics and experiment, such as chemistry, astronomy, and physics, whilst the sciences of observation, geology, mineralogy, zoology, and botany remained to represent the wider natural history of olden days. Buffon and Linnaeus wrote their natural histories under this latter idea, namely, that they professed the study of rocks, fossils, plants, and animals. Further limitation of scientific aims and names was, however, soon necessitated by the increase of knowledge. It was clearly perceived that, as living things, the animals and plants remained more closely connected than did the geological and other branches of natural history. Hence, in due course, a new name crept into use to indicate the sciences which specially select life and living beings as subjects of study. In 1801, Lamarck, the French naturalist, first used the name biologie to indicate the collection of sciences dealing with the manifold relations of animals and plants. There seems to be a faculty in the human mind for acquiring a liking for a name or method which exhibits a special appropriateness in its description of the objects it is destined to describe. And we find that, despite the firm hold which the name natural history had obtained as descriptive of the study of life, it is being gradually superseded by the name biology, in every sense a most appropriate term. Although chiefly in the northern parts of these islands we still cling with a striking proclivity, favored by a reverence for antiquity to the name natural history, the term biology has already gained a secure hold as a scientific expression. 
Today, when we study natural history, we should be understood to take the widest possible view of natural things, and we may include in our studies subjects as diverse as the origin of chalk flints, the anatomy of the brain, the liquefaction of gases, and the fertilization of flowers. But when we assert that we study biology, we thus limit, with some degree of exactness, the objects of research. Then we take for granted that our studies limit us to the fields of life, to the history of animals and plants, a history which, be it remarked, however, stretches its interests far afield and relates itself in many and diverse ways to other and even widely separated branches of knowledge. Thus, much may be said by way of introduction to the nature of biological study. In the field before us lie the manifold concerns of the world of life, and it is straining no analogy to assert, with Mr. Herbert Spencer, that preparation in biology may after all be the best preliminary for the successful study of the human race, and for the understanding and regulation of its interests, whether regarded as pertaining to the individual, the family, the race, or the nation at large. It is no startling thought that the laws of human life and society can be demonstrated to be founded upon wider laws which prevail in animal life at large, and that the analogies and resemblances betwixt the ways of humanity and the acts of lower life are too close to admit a doubt of their intimate relationship. Spencer is stating no mythical idea, but a solid fact, when he remarks that, quote, the science of life yields to the science of society certain great generalizations, without which there can be no science of society at all, unquote. Nor is the statement to be viewed as aught else than reasonable that, quote, all social actions being determined by the actions of individuals, and all actions of individuals being vital actions that conform to the laws of life at large, a rational interpretation of social actions implies knowledge of the laws of life. Unquote. Such a subject, however, the connexus between biology and human interests, would require a volume to itself and at present I merely mention the fact of such relationship to impress the idea that the future of biology will undoubtedly include in its scope much of human affairs that now appears wholly at a distance from the interests of animals and plants at large. Nor have I the intention at present of discussing the relations of biology to religion or of trenching even cursorily upon those modifications in religious opinion and in theological reasoning which, of all the sciences, biology has been the most plainly instrumental in inaugurating and fostering. At present, therefore, we may simply endeavor to discover how biology is to be studied, to what that study leads, and the nature and direction of the paths wherein the modern biologist pursues his research. If, according to Spencer, preparation in biology is the great necessity for a true knowledge of the laws which govern human society, so, for us, preparation in the methods of the science of life is a needful preliminary for an understanding of the influence which modern biology has exerted upon men's ideas concerning the order and origin of living nature. The study of the standpoints of biology may be fitly commenced by a reference to the manner in which the investigations of the biologist into the history of animals and plants are carried on. It is the province of science to be exact, 
it is the first and highest duty of its professors to secure correctness in their methods of discovering facts in science we are not at liberty to begin anywhere as in truth our researches if pursued completely will terminate in a definite fashion organized method is in short the great essential for scientific success in the pursuit and discovery of truth and it is in his adoption of such methods that the scientific investigator differs most notably from the student in many other departments of thought we may note in passing that another and equally important characteristic of scientific investigation exists in the fact that having no prejudices to defend or prepossessions to consult the man of science stands in no dread of the results to which he may be led and is placed at no disadvantage when he replaces beliefs however time-honored they may be by the newer phases of thought to which his studies have led four very definite questions may be said to contain in their replies the materials for constructing the full history of any living being the queries to which i allude are such as the child might well ask respecting any object presented for the first time to his view and it is worthy of note that the methods of inquiry through which the cumulative experience of ordinary life is gained find in the questionings of science a striking parallel first and most naturally we inquire concerning the living being what is it next in order comes the question how does it live thirdly the query where is it found appears as a most natural inquiry and the question how has it come to be what it is may fitly close the list of scientific interrogations it may be said that could we perfectly and fully answer these four queries as applied to any living thing the history of such a form might be regarded as being in every sense complete its present history its past existence its way of life its bodily mechanism its evolution and descent these and other points in which the life and being of an animal or plant is summed up are included in the replies to our four queries answer these questions fully i repeat respecting an animal or plant and you leave no item in its history unexplained when they shall have been fully answered respecting the known organic world then will dawn a millennium in biological and other sciences of which however not the remotest shadow of a dream has yet crossed the scientific expectation full as our knowledge is on many points of structure and life history biologists too frankly recognize the gaps in their information to hope for or expect the completion of their science even in the most distant years that from the present horizon we care to scan still the labor of investigation proceeds apace slowly it may be yet hopefully and every scientific advance which the present sees or the future may know may assuredly be regarded as filling up wholly or in part one or more of the replies to the four questions wherein as we have seen the gist of biology is comprised the principle of the division of labor which has wrought such wonderful changes and improvements in human affairs political social and commercial has extended its advantages to the domain of life science in that each query possesses its allotted branch as the agent for supplying its answer part of the excellence of biological reasoning and of scientific method at large consists in the fact that the labor of investigation is divided amongst three well-marked branches of inquiry whilst the answers to the fourth and last question on our list are in reality supplied by the concentrated knowledge 
of the three preceding replies. Thus, to the question, what is it, the science we name morphology gives us an answer. This department of biology concerns itself with structure alone. Under this head, we gain a complete knowledge of the mechanism of the living being. A watchmaker taking a watch or clock to pieces to ascertain the structure of the timepiece investigates its morphology. An engineer describing to a bystander the principles of the mechanism he has constructed is similarly detailing its morphological composition. The structure and build of the living body, animal or plant, high or low organism, be it remembered, is investigated under this first head of inquiry. It is morphology which places before us the few facts of structure perceptible in the animacule, and it is this science, in its highest development, which investigates the complexities of the human organization itself. But morphology can readily be shown to possess a subdivision into three important branches, each dealing with a special phase of living structure. There exists, firstly, the subdivision anatomy, which deals with the structure of the fully developed or adult animal or plant. Next in order comes development, a study all important, as we shall hereafter see, in the eyes of modern biologists. Through development we obtain a knowledge of the manner in which the adult body, which anatomy investigates, came to assume its perfect and completed form. Development, in short, initiates us into nature's manufactories and shows us her methods of evolving living organisms. Just as even a rapid run through a watch manufactory and a glance at this table and that or a look at the various stages in the progress of the watch towards perfection would afford an idea of the fashioning and forming of the watch, so development gives us an insight into the process and method employed and followed in the formation of the animal or plant. The pin or pen we think so little of came to be what it is through a highly complex process of manufacture. To thoroughly know what the pin or the pen is, we should naturally require a knowledge of how it was made. Just so in nature, development teaches us how the animal and the plant is made. Nay, more, it tells us also, by the way, a wondrous tale respecting the causes of the manufacture and the circumstances which have led nature to frame her living possessions according to one fashion or another, and to relate, it may be, apparently diverse articles of her handiwork in the closest bond of intimacy and union. Last of all, a third department of morphology, or the science of structure, exists in the shape of taxonomy or classification. It is the plainest of truisms that we can only classify and arrange any set of objects truly and satisfactorily when we really know the objects, and when we possess a perfect acquaintance with their structure. Hence, classification falls into a most natural place when, after the acquirement of knowledge concerning the structure and nature of living beings, we are able, as a consequence, to place together those which are truly alike and to separate those which are unalike. By way of illustrating the application of morphology and on the principle that example is better than precept, let us select as an example of scientific inquiry the history of a fish. Under the head of morphology, the biologist is bound to take account of every detail of structure which that animal exhibits. Through the aid of anatomy, he will make its acquaintance as a fully formed being. He will ascertain the full details of its structure, note the form, number, position, and relation of its organs, 
and in general obtain a thorough knowledge of its composition and bodily mechanism but anatomy does not inform him of the prior history of the fish hence he turns to development as a means of showing him the manner in which the fish body grew and was fashioned beginning as a small speck of protoplasm indistinguishable from the matter which forms the whole body of the lower animalcule he would trace for us the evolution of the complex body from materials of extreme simplicity hour by hour and day by day he would chronicle the changes in the division of the egg the first appearance of the embryo the beginnings of the heart pulse the formation of brain and nerve and the outlining of body at large and finally he would show how the completed being evolved by strange artifice from literal nothingness grows to its adult form and takes its place amongst the finished products of nature such are the details of development finally asking himself concerning the place and rank of the fish in the scale of creation the biologist would turn to classification to aid him in his search ascertaining the structure and development of other fishes he would know accurately enough the proper sphere to which science calls and in which science places the form before him he would find cause to utterly reject classifications and systems of arrangement not founded upon a true knowledge of structure the whale for instance is classified as a fish by primitive man and i may add also by persons amongst ourselves whose culture professes to be by no means of a low grade it is fish-like in form and appearance it inhabits the sea its conditions of life are evidently those of the fish why then asks popular opinion is the whale not a fish seeing that in any case the latter is very like a whale to this question the biologist can but reply that if nature has modeled whale and fish on the same lines he can have no quarrel with nature on that account his however is the duty to assure himself that the fish and whale are really alike through anatomy he learns that outwardly alike as the two animals are things in this instance are really not what they seem the fish his study of morphology informs him has cold blood and a heart consisting of but two cavities or chambers the whale he finds has warm blood and a heart constructed on the same type as that of the biologist himself and consisting of four chambers the fish is covered with scales the whale's body covering consists typically of hairs and whilst the fish out of water dies as a rule because its gills are then removed from the medium from which they derive the oxygen for breathing the whale breathes by lungs and as every one knows requires to ascend periodically to the surface of the water to inhale the air directly from the atmosphere like ourselves the whole internal economy of the fish albeit that it exhibits the same general type as that of the whale is of much less complex kind and not to penetrate more deeply into the distinctions which separate the whale race from the fish tribe we may lay stress on one last fact of primary importance in distinguishing the two animals namely that whilst the fish was developed from an egg which was hatched externally to the parent body the whale was born alive and was nourished in its early life by the milk secretion of its parent now all of these characteristics infallibly demonstrate to the merest tyro in zoology that so far from a whale being in any sense a fish it is a true quadruped or mammal like ourselves it finds refuge in the same class which includes the kangaroos and their neighbors as its lowest members or democracy and apes and man as its aristocrats 
The whale, in short, is a mammal with but two well-developed limbs, and occasionally rudiments of two other members, the two front and developed limbs being converted into swimming paddles or flippers. It is a quadruped modified for an aquatic life, and resembles the fish only in the fact that its body is built up on one and the same general type, and in its outward modification as a tenant of the vasty deep. Thus clearly do we observe that the true position of an animal or plant in the living series can only be determined by a reference to the facts of structure. Classification, in other words, is the natural termination to the work begun by the anatomist and the student of development. End of chapter 2, part 1